Let's go ahead and, and start reading. And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when the kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. And she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the preaching this morning. Father, I love you this morning. I thank you very much for the ability to be here. Lord, it's a privilege to be here. It's not my right. I realize that even though I am the pastor, it's still a privilege to be here this morning. Thank you for giving us a local church. Thank you for establishing this church. Thank you for calling me to preach and, and Lord, giving me your words. I'm so glad I have something to preach besides my opinion or my thoughts or what the people want this morning. I have the words of God, and I thank you for that. And I pray now as we get into the Bible, I ask you, God, to please help this message to come out the right way. Uh, Lord, you know how I feel about this and, and, and all that. We've already talked about it. God, I want to preach this message uh, the right way, Lord. I, I need your help. I need your strength. I need your direction. Now, I pray that this would serve, Lord, not just as a warning, but that it would serve to apply to whatever area of our lives we may need it, that each individual would get from this message this morning what it is that they need, and that maybe, Lord, this is just preventive maintenance, and we can keep somebody safe and, and keep somebody from making mistakes and messing up and, and hurting other people and hurting the work. I just pray, God, that you would do what only you can do this morning and use this message. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We've been looking at things that hurt the church on these Sunday mornings, going through a little bit of a series here. and It's been a couple of weeks since we've been on that series, but we've been looking at things that hurt the church. And I got thinking about this because it's been, it's, it's been in, in me a long time, this whole subject matter that we're looking at. I've watched it growing up in church my whole life. I have seen how bad it is when churches split. I've seen how hurtful it is when, when problems come up in church and issues arise. And man, it is truly, it is truly a life-changing thing. A lot of people that aren't serving God anymore, they'll point to being hurt in church somewhere. They'll point to some testimony of a Christian somewhere along the line that, that really just did major damage to them. And I think about that, and man, that scares me a little bit. I mean, I, I don't want to be the one that causes somebody else to be out of church. I don't want to be the one that causes a church to split. I don't want to be the one that does damage to the work of God. I don't want to be the one that hurts people. Listen, I'm not talking about hurting people because they're offended by the truth. That doesn't bother me. If you don't like the truth and you, you, know, you hate me because you hurt me because you preached against my sin and you made me feel bad about myself and blah, 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 wah, 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 go tell your mama because I'm not worried about that. Amen. I'm here to preach the truth. 
I, I, don't, I don't care if people are offended at the truth. What I care about is if I hurt somebody while I'm preaching the truth. I'm not here to just be offensive with truth. I don't want to hurt somebody by my behavior. I don't want to hurt somebody by messing up. And I'm telling you this much. I've watched it throughout my life. I've sat in it as little boys and heard the, the, the church splits. I've watched them take place. My dad was a pastor. I sat on the front porch with this sweet old lady who went, her hands were shaking. She was so nervous because her husband is screaming at my dad when he took me with him. I said, let's go have a little father-son time and we'll go do some visits. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. Let's go, dad. We show up at the first visit and a member of the church and he is literally losing it on my dad in front I was an elementary age boy and his wife kills in the deep freeze I can still see her and she's trying to find a a popsicle for me her hands are shaking pastor can I take him out and he's screaming and throwing a fit he's like yes that'd be fine he's like I'll I'll take care we're sitting out on the front porch and I'm eating my popsicle and she's trying to distract me and I can hear the guy screaming at my dad in the house I remember sitting in the back pew of a building just a little bit smaller than this, sitting in the back pew late at night while dad's in another meeting, and I can hear the guy, a different guy, screaming his fool head off, and my mom's like, should we call the police? What should we do? We're the only ones here in the building, and the guy's bigger than dad, and he's losing it. I've seen this stuff in church. You know what I don't want? I don't want these little kids having those kind of memories. I don't want them walking into church and thinking like, well, God's people might be good today, and they might not be. We've been looking at things that hurt the church and I've been following the storyline beginning with David and and Saul and we started out looking in 1 Samuel chapter 18 at envy and how envy really does a lot of damage in relationships that God intends for you to have in your life. We got to be very careful about an envious spirit. It will destroy you when you get an envious spirit towards somebody else and there's a lot of that that goes on in church. We also looked in 2 Samuel chapter 2 at a competitive spirit that Abner and Joab had. And I'm telling you, I've seen it my whole life. I mean, this is something in church, everybody complains about it. The Pharisees in church, the self-righteous people in church, the people walking around with their nose so high, high in the air that if it rained, they drown. You know, that whole, that whole spirit of like, I'm better than you. A competitive spirit. I mean, we began the whole thing with the dichotomy of the Christian life. You've got to realize that just because we're saved and just because we got the Spirit of God in us does not mean that the sin has been eradicated. It has been forgiven, but in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. So although I'm here and I'm saved and I'm trying to serve God and I want to do right and I want to help people, I want to do the right thing, I want to be a part of the ministry, amen? I don't want to just be here. I want to be a part of it. I want to serve God, don't you? Here's the problem. I want to serve God, but I'm still in a sinful flesh. So a lot of times those good things that we want to do for the church for God become convoluted and mixed up with the sinful flesh. It's the dichotomy of the Christian life. It's like I'm trying to do the right thing, but my motives sometimes are off. I want to do the right thing and it's the right thing to do, but God doesn't want me to do it. So you got this, this messed up confusion because your flesh will drive you to do things for God, to serve God, to be a part of it. And then the competition comes in because somebody else gets the position that you wanted to have in church. Or you thought when you got here that you were going to be the life-changing, ministry-changing piece of the puzzle. And, and it's like everybody needs to notice that you're here. 
Nobody said hi to me. Nobody shook my hand. Nobody recognized me. Well, why did you come to church? Because I love God and I want to hear the preaching. But when you got here, you got offended because nobody... See the dichotomy? We all struggle with it because we're all saved people. If you're not, you need to be before you leave. Living in sinful flesh. So the envy comes up and the competitive spirit comes up. And I am telling you, I have seen this one and it is so bad. The competitive spirit in church has ruined more churches than probably anything else. Struggle for power. Struggle for who's going to be the boss. We saw then a critical spirit. 2 Samuel 6. Where Michael begins criticizing David. And boy, a lot of churches got that. I don't want to have a critical spirit. I don't want to be this, this so self-righteous and so thinking I got it all figured out that everything else everybody else does is always wrong all the time. But this morning now, we come to a subject in 2 Samuel 11. Because from 2 Samuel 6 to 2 Samuel 11, I don't find anything that's going to hurt or destroy the kingdom and destroy what God's doing, destroy the ministry. I don't find anything until I come here. And I'll tell you, this one this morning is an extremely important subject that I do not want to preach. I, don't, I just don't want to preach this one. I'm going to do my very best to be extremely tactful, to be respectful. I especially don't want to preach this one today because I ain't feeling 100% myself. My mind ain't quite where I'd like it to be. But I do believe this is what God has for us today. What I want to preach to you about this morning is lust's destructive power. The destructive power of lust. I realize that as we grow spiritually, we come to a point where we begin to think we have certain things under control. We would like to think that there's certain things we would never do. You would like to consider that maybe at some point in your life, you start to get a little bit older maybe, maybe you're in your 40s or your 50s, you'd like to start thinking there's certain things like, I've seen that before and I know what comes of that and I know how that turns out and I'm not going there, okay? You'd like to think you can get to a point where you sort of put certain things in cruise control and you got it under control and you got nothing to worry about. But I'm here to tell you, you never get to that point until you die. Because lust is an extremely powerful thing. Now, I think it's important that we take a second and step back and then we're going to come back to the passage and we're going to go through this thing pretty quick because I want to show you how this thing works, the process that it goes through because there's a process to it. But before we dive into the particular story, I think it's very important to step back and I want to make a broader application to lust than what it is your mind would automatically go to. Your mind automatically goes to those things that are sensual and immoral, adultery, fornication, and all the rest of that stuff. And I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning that that's all very accurate. Okay? That's not like, no, that's not the definition of lust. That's love. That's what you're told today. It's not love, it's lust. Okay? Just, we're just going to call the baby ugly this morning. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, as a pastor, you go to visit all the babies when they're born, and you always got to, like, you know, you can't call the baby ugly. Understand what I'm saying? Oh, such a beautiful baby, right? 
Well, we're just going to call the baby ugly this morning. Some of them aren't that beautiful. They get beautiful later and all that stuff. But some of the babies, you ever seen them? (laughs) They're wonderful. They're cute. They're little miracles. But what in the world is that? You know what I'm saying? It looks like a little alien when they first come out. That's what they look like. We're going to call the baby ugly this morning. Adultery has always been wrong. Adultery is still wrong. Listen to me. Fornication. That is having marital relationships. I'm trying to be very gentle. Having marital relationships before you're married. Now listen, the little stinking theologians in the room, they're going to be like, well, marriage is flesh joining flesh, and so, you know, we, we just haven't had the ceremony yet publicly, but we're already married and we're monogamous, and you're a stinking liar, you're a fornicator, and you're trying to cut around the truth to, to excuse your sin. If you weren't a fornicator, then you'd have been willing to wait until the right time when you publicly before God and the church made a vow one to another, and that thing was signed, sealed, and delivered in public. And you locked yourself to it. Ladies, when a boy starts trying to teach you doctrine like that, he's a devil. Fornication. We're not even going to trans and homosexual and all the rest of that stuff, right? Fornication is still a sin in the eyes of God. And it is driven by lust, not love. Some of you look shocked. You know what shocks me? It shocks me that you even have to say this stuff and define this stuff in a Bible-believing church nowadays because there more than likely is somebody sitting here who thinks I'm nuts. It's still wrong. You've been so inundated with it in this culture that you become desensitized to it and now we're at a point where absolutely Anything goes, and nothing is wrong. Now listen, it's a free country. And God Almighty has given you a free will. And you can do what you want with your life. But you will stand before God, and you will will give an account, and you will give an account according to what that book says, not according to your opinion or the rewritten definitions of the world to try to make you feel better about your sin. Now, I don't preach on this stuff very often. Those of you that have been here 10 or 12 or 13, uh, Jim, you've been here 15 years, right at 15 years now, right? How many times do you hear me tune in on a subject like this and preach from this chapter in 15 years? I just want that known for our visitors. I don't make a hobby horse out of this, but we're following through the life of David and we're looking at the things that did great damage and great harm in his life and in his ministry, and in his kingdom. And our human nature is the same way. That's why God listed these things. So yes, lust has to do with adultery and fornication and pornography and all the rest of that stuff. And again, without going too far here, I just want you to know, I want you to understand something. Non-Bible believing, lost people today will tell you how grossly destructive and inaccurate pornography truly is. And you live in a culture where it's rampant. Our kids are seeing things, their brain chemistry is being messed up, and the rest of their life in areas that God intends to bless, like a marital relationship, is being destroyed 
because they've been reprogrammed by a lustful society to think reality is what reality ain't. But lust isn't completely defined in all of those things. Go with me, if you would, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter number 5. I want to show you just a couple of things real quick, and then we'll come back over here. Because there's a broader application this morning than just the things of the flesh. Just things of, of morality. Again, bear with me. I'm doing my best, and I'll continue to do my best to be respectful about the subject matter. Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 13, please. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Well, that's exactly what the modern church is doing today. They claim that we're called to liberty, and then they're just, you know, anything goes. It's the altar grace stuff. No standards, no rules. And if, as a church, if you judge something like adultery going on in the church, or if you judge something like fornication going on in the youth group, you're like, crazy. You're a cult. Well, it's still Bible. It's still spelled out very clearly in black and white. We don't have time to run the passages today. But when somebody's openly living in sin, unrepentant, and wanting to strut it in the church's face, the church is not to stand for that. That doesn't mean we hate sinners and throw everybody out and mess us up. You have no idea the things that I try to help with and deal with when somebody's struggling personally and they come to me for help. Amen. Oh, you got that sin problem? You're, got, you're out! Talking about somebody flaunting it in the church's face like the boy in 1 Corinthians and expecting the church to put their stamp and seal of approval on his sin. You got the wrong preacher. I'm not that lustful for building a church. And yes, that's an accurate application of the word. My drive and my desire to have a big church does not override my desire to have a pure church that God Almighty sees and God Almighty shows up in and God Almighty loves. It is His church, not mine. And He wrote the rule book, not me. So you don't like it? Tough. Leave, call me a cult leader, say I'm this, that, and destructive and wreck people's psychology and all the rest of that. Fine, call me whatever you want to call me. You think I care? Do I look like I care? <laughs> I'm going to go home and sleep like an absolute baby. God's the one that calls the rules, not me. Use not your liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. You've been freed from sin so that you can actually serve each other. Not be envious of each other, not compete with each other. Serve each other. Not criticize each other. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. See a church that's hurting itself? This I say, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill, watch it, the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. <laughs> you ever get frustrated because you're trying to get something done and you feel like you keep failing? Yes. He told you it was going to happen. You know what it is? It's the dichotomy of the Christian life. It's the fact that you're trying to do right and the flesh that you're living in is always pushing back against the Spirit of God. The flesh you're in has always got its own drive, its own desire, its own things it wants fulfilled, its own satisfaction that it's looking for. That's lust. 
It's not always dealing with morality. It's dealing with the drive of the flesh and the desire of a carnal man and the desire of carnal appetites. Well, I wanted to be the next Sunday school teacher. Well, I wanted to be the next deacon. Well, I wanted to be on the singing schedule. That's lust, and that can be fleshly even in the service of God and become something that's damaging to the church. They're lusting against, it's pushing back against. It says, so you cannot do the things that you would, but if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Look at how it starts. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Now we're getting into the, the big dogs in the next verse, because that's just natural stuff. Idolatry. See how it's spiritual sins? Witchcraft. Hatred. Variance. Emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ, now watch it, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. You see that? If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. You see what what the flesh does? It lusts against the Spirit. And it's more than just adultery, fornication, uncleanness. The lusts of the flesh go on and go beyond that to where you even have a man like Saul now going down to a witch and he's into witchcraft. You're saying, how did you wind up in witchcraft? Somewhere along the line, he didn't stand up against his flesh. He didn't crucify the lust of the flesh. He went with his own desire, his own lust, his own, I want to be the main man. I want to be the one they're saying killed 10,000. How come they're looking at David like that? He's going to take what's mine. It's all lust. And it didn't have anything to do with adultery. It didn't have anything to do with Bathsheba. You see how lust in a biblical application with the full biblical definition goes beyond just the child's play of adultery and fornication. That, that's simple stuff. It goes even deeper. Now let me show you another passage. Go over to the book of James, please. James in chapter number 1. James chapter number 1, look at verse 13, please. The Bible says in James 1, 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away, how? Of his own lust and enticed. So you mean it's my fault? You know what you're going to notice when we go back to the story here in just a minute, and I'm going to try to cruise through it when we go look at it? Nowhere in there do you find any blame assessed to Bathsheba. Now, when you study the scholars, because I love looking at what those goofballs say, because they're just, they're just, I'm sorry, they're just morons. They're trying to sound smart, and they're just out in left field nine times out of ten. When you study the scholars, they have a whole list of things they have to say about Bathsheba. Not one scripture reference to back up their stinking opinion. 
If you turn on Hollywood, who loves to make movies about this kind of stuff because they're appealing to the lusts of people's flesh. They want to present it how they want it presented, but they don't want you to see what God wants you to learn from the story. Oh, you'll, you'll find all kinds of insinuations about Bathsheba, but nowhere in the text do you find God saying anything other than the facts of she was bathing. How come nobody stops to say maybe she knew it was a time when kings go forth to battle because her husband was one of David's mighty men and David's normal pattern was to go out with her husband. He certainly came back talking about David and the battle and the exploits and the things that they'd no doubt about that. How come nobody stops to think that she's thinking they're all gone and I'm in complete privacy right now. But nowhere do you ever find David blaming Bathsheba. Not one time. Well, the world we're living in nowadays, I'm so full up of listening to preachers preach about the way women dress, it makes me want to vomit. You aren't going to change it. And she's not to blame, you are. I'll never forget, it hit me almost 20 years ago now, when Brother Lentz was preaching. And he was talking about some preacher who's, who, some other preacher who was saying, her pants were so tight, I could tell whether the quarter in her back pocket was heads or tails. That's what the preacher was saying, preaching against the women. And Brother Lentz said, what you looking for, bud? You little pervert, you. I thought, well, that's a really good point. And it stuck with me from 20 years ago. I never forgot. What I'm trying to tell you is you can't shift the blame for your sin problem to anybody else. The sin problem resides in you. The biggest problem you're ever going to have in your Christian life is you. Period. So don't say you're tempted to God. Every man is tempted in verse 14 when he's drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Now watch verse 15. Then when lust hath conceived. So, so there's a seed sitting in my flesh. Because my flesh is sinful. And naturally and instinctively in my flesh. There's a seed of lust. Whether that be moral lust or any of the other kinds of lusts. It's in every single human being. You got that? Now. That seed can have a conception if it meets the right situations. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. We're going to look at David's situation and how the conception happened. You know what the Spirit of God wants you to do according to Galatians chapter 5? The Spirit of God wants you to allow the Spirit of God to run the show so often there's never a conception. But what God has done is He set it up to where once there is a conception... He's the one, excuse the term, don't shut me off when you hear the term. He's the one that can abort the conception. Now watch. When lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Well, I don't want that, do you? 
You guys know what happened in David's story? We have to look at this story. Now let's go back to 2 Samuel 11. I had another passage to show you that I'm going to just mention to you uh, for the sake of time because I'm running behind here. The other passage I was going to show you was one of the first times the word lust is mentioned in your Bible early on. It was the children of Israel lusting after the food they used to have in Egypt and resenting God for the manna they were eating now. They were lusting after food. You see how it's not always morality? There's more to the problem of lust in us than just the moral application. That's what I want you to grab a hold of. Now, we have to look at this story like I began to say just a minute ago. Because as we proceed through things that hurt the church, many if not almost all of the problems are rooted out of this chapter. The vast majority of David's heartbreaks in his life came from one stupid decision that was out of character for who he was. Did you hear me? It was out of character. That scares the fire out of me. Because if a man as great as David could do something like this, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Notice in the passage, if you would, the destruction of lust. Why did David wind up in this situation? Number one, I just got four very simple points that I think I'm going to go through quickly. But number one, he wasn't busy in the mundane duties God had given him. Real simple. Look at verse one. It came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle. At the time when kings go forth to battle. That David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed and got the great victory and all the rest of the stuff. Do you see the problem? David wasn't supposed to be in the palace. And David was in the palace. Dr. Ruckman always used to say the number one killer of Christians is mundane, routine duty. Everybody loves all the high times, the great times, the exciting times. The reality of the Christian life is honestly, like Brother Peacock says, sag, bag, and drag. You got to get up tomorrow morning and guess what you got to do? You got to go to work. And most of you don't like it. You know what you're doing tomorrow morning when you go to work? You're serving Jesus Christ. It don't feel like it, does it? It's not exciting. Some of you kids got to get up and you got to go to school tomorrow. Woo! Why do I have to go to school? To keep you out of trouble. God gives you duties and things you got to accomplish and things you're supposed to be doing. Hey, 
clean the house. Cook the meals. Wash the dishes. Clean your room. Go to work. Put the cotton picking smartphone down and shut the TV off once in a while and read your Bible. I didn't say 24-7. I didn't say never watch TV, okay? People hear crazy stuff when I preach that I never said, but they'll tell you I did. Makes me cotton pick. It makes me, it's an evil spirit in them is what it is. I'm talking about mundane, routine duty. Do it. Because when you start doing what the flesh lusts to do, which is sit back and kick your feet up and chill out and don't do your job, you will wind up in trouble. Every time. Look at verse 2. It came to pass in an eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. Did you see where he was? He's on his bed. David, that ain't you, man. That ain't who you are. That ain't who you've ever been. If my nose starts bleeding, it's the perforated sinus. I'm not dying, all right? I'm just paranoid about it, so I'm checking. Sorry. That ain't David. He's not the kind of guy to be laying around on his bed. Have you watched what an industrious young man he is? He started acting out of character. He delegated a job God gave him to Joab in verse number 1. God gave David that job. He's the king. You know what will happen in your life? I told you we skipped chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, right? Because I found nothing in there that's destructive. We're preaching on things that hurt the church. You know what had happened in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10? David says, God, I'm going to build you a temple. God says, hey man... Never asked for one, but because of your heart, I'm going to let your boy do it, and I'm going to let you prepare for it because you're a bloody man, and I can't have a guy like you doing something that holy, but I'm going to have your son do it. And God gives David promises that last, we'll even look at it tonight, I think. God gives promises to David, and David and God have this unbelievable experience. Then chapter 8, 9, 10, David goes through and he has victories in battle and all this stuff. His kingdom's getting established. His sons are getting established as leaders and chief men in the kingdom. He's watching his family get stronger, his family develop. His, his grown sons are stepping in to be men that are leaders and good, solid guys. And I mean, things are happening and he's got the family we all would want to have. Look at his boys. Look at what God's done. That a kingdom is strong, man. He's getting victories everywhere he turns. No, because I think it's chapter 9, he goes and finds Mephibosheth, and he makes good on a promise he made to Jonathan. He does some great spiritual deeds in being good to Mephibosheth. God's just been so good to David all the way through there. Things are going so well. David's so well established and so much victory and such good, strong guys around him that David says, it's time to go forth to battle. Hey, you guys go get them. Yeah, you're busy, preacher. We'll take care of it. Just relax. You've been working hard for a long time. Just chill out. I'm not saying there's not a time to relax. Don't take it too far, okay? Please understand the point that I'm making. And David says, okay, I'm going to stay home. Joab, you go ahead. You know why I, I am the way I am about preaching when I'm here? 
You know how easy it'd be to be like, hey, man, you want to preach? We've got three guys called to preach here. Two of them, one's done with Bible school, one's in Bible school, one's fixing to get in Bible school. And been with me for years. You know, you know how easy it'd be for me to be like, eh, I don't feel like preaching Wednesday and they, they're dying for an opportunity. I'll rotate the guys through. You know why I do it? Because I'm a ball hawk. Because I think it's all about me. Because I'm a control freak. Well, you can think what you want, but I'll tell you what I think. I think it's the responsibility that God put on my shoulders. And it's the job God's given me. And from what I've noticed, you never payroll deduct me when I don't preach. I get paid either way. Thank you very much. It's my job. There's a responsibility. You think I enjoy sitting down in my office and, okay, let's get another message ready week after week after. I love preaching. I love being, I love coming in here. I love seeing your face. I love fellowship and I, I love, I love counseling. I love everything that goes into this part of being a pastor. I do not enjoy the mundane routine duty of digging into another chapter and getting some more stuff ready and double checking those references and making sure I, and then messing up when I'm preaching it and getting caught every time I mess up. I don't enjoy that part. But you know how God keeps me out of trouble? By making me busy. It's my duty. It keeps my nose in the book and off the smartphone. It keeps my eyes on the words of God doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And God's done the same thing for every last one of you. That's why, that's why you're supposed to be working. When you fell into sin. When lust conceived... When Satan said, hey, hey, look, look, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, you shall be as God's knowing. And she had a desire to know more and to be better and to be greater and to get that promotion. It was lust. God showed up and said, in that state, you've got to be working. You've got to be busy. You've got duties. You've got things to take care of. It keeps your mind busy. Mom and Dad, I'm not stepping into your business. I'm giving you a suggestion. A suggestion is make them earn their TV time. Why should you go to work all day long when they're old enough and then come in and have to do their cotton-picking laundry? Are you kidding me? How old are you? I ain't folding your socks. Have to do their laundry have to do their, their cooking, have to do the cleaning up after them, have to go out of the house picking up after your kids? I mean, when they're little, yeah. But by the time they're toddling around, they're picking up their own toys in our house. <laughs> you know what you're doing? I don't want to. You're keeping their mind pure. You're keeping them out of trouble. God designed it that way. And we need it. When he began avoiding the mundane routine duties and started loafing around, he then gets himself in a whole bunch of trouble. And it happened on the heels of great success and great victory and great establishment and great strength. Notice something else. Because he wasn't busy in his mundane routine duties, out with the boys fighting. Which don't sound so mundane, does it? (laughs) If he had to do it all the time, he'd get there. He saw something he wasn't supposed to see. That's in verse number two. 
comes to pass, he's up there walking on the roof, and look at the end of the chapter, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Can I say this tactfully? Every last one of us, and all your kids, I don't care how much you try to isolate them, and shelter them, and some of that's good, especially when they're little. It's not that bad. Can't brainwash our kids. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're trying to wash them with the water by the word of God. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Right. While they're trying to pump their septic tanks in our kids' heads. Right. What's happening is he's walking on that roof, and it happens to all of us now in this day and age especially because of the TV and social media and smartphones and tablets and all the rest of this stuff. You see things you shouldn't see. Now, don't look at me like you're all innocent. I'm being super, super tactful, but I will guarantee you I could preach the same message about five times as rough and direct and wouldn't educate one person in this room. What's that, Dad? I'm just trying to be appropriate and respectful of the fact there's mixed company here. The fact of the matter is there's not a person in here. You can't drive down the highways nowadays without seeing things that used to be considered grossly inappropriate. And you can't turn on a television and watch a movie nowadays without seeing things that used to be pornographic. You all see things you shouldn't see. And David did. That's why you're supposed to be busy. That's why you're supposed to be not spending too much time on those devices. Can I just say something to the young people? And hopefully most of the parents appreciate me for it. But if not, oh well. You got parents that put restrictions on you with your phone, especially when you're young. It comes a point you got to trust them. I get that. They're an adult. I get that. But even if you're a teenager and your parents have restrictions on you, shut your bratty mouth You don't even understand the amount of damage they're trying to keep from happening. And I said it before and I'll say it again. Lost people nowadays are trying to warn people about the damage that's done through what these people are seeing on their smart screens and all the rest of the junk they got going on. The damage that's being caused. That's right. And it's not a joke. It's destructive. He saw something he shouldn't see. And like I said already, it sooner or later happens to everybody. It's especially as uh, uh, horrible nowadays because of the, you know, the culture you're in. You don't have to leave your house to pull it up. But here's the thing. The problem was not seeing something he shouldn't see. It's not the problem. If you saw something you shouldn't see, that is not your fault. The problem was his response to what he saw. You see the conception? So naturally in him, sitting there, residing in him as a sinful human being, is lust. With the right trigger and the improper response, there's a conception. Do you know the devil knows how to set you up? He knows how to set up every last person in this room. And it doesn't have to be moral stuff. Your lust could be something totally different. We don't all have the exact same sins, but what we have is common to man. 
His response to what he saw was the problem. What he did is he stopped to look upon it. See, there's a beautiful woman washing herself. The woman was very beautiful to what? Last two words in the second verse. Oh, you know what that tells you? David looked upon her. He didn't say, oh. David, what are you thinking, man? What could you possibly be thinking? You've been around how long now? I mean, I've tried to find it, and and I think he's probably somewhere up in his 40s by now, possibly as late as 50. The youngest he would be would be in his late 30s. But more than likely, he's up in his 40s by now. I mean, you've been around long enough. You know what's going to come of this. You know God. Did you lose your cotton-picking mind? You've just been so successful. Everything's been going so good. He was so close to God. He was so spiritual. He knew how to rightly divide the word of truth. He could quote all the verses. He could pray in millions. He and God, you know, we're good. I'm the man. I've arrived. He already had plenty of wives. He had too many wives already at this point. He didn't need any more. You ever, I, I, just, I guarantee you this much. You ain't never seen a more miserable man than a man that believes in polygamy. Come on. You lost your mind, bro. I mean, whenever you grow up and get past the youthful lusts, you're going to realize how absolutely cotton-picking miserable you are. He didn't need any more. What happened? How could that happen? It happened because he dropped his guard and just stopped. He wasn't fulfilling his mundane routine duties and the devil set him up right at the right time and he saw something he shouldn't see and then the problem grew. Because instead of going, oh God, there's a conception! That was, that was sin, God, this thing's getting bad! I messed up! And his heart smiting him for stopping to look. That's what should have happened. And the goodness and grace of God floods in there and says, thank you for confessing, I forgive you, and it's gone. And it stayed between David and God. That's how the story should read. But you know what he did? He inquired about what he saw. He hasn't done anything yet. Hasn't actually committed the sin yet, other than in the eyes of God. Because if a man look on a woman and lust after her, he's committed adultery already in his heart. He hadn't yet gone that far with it, but now he asks the question. Look at verse 3. David sat and inquired after the woman and said, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Boy, you'd think that'd be enough to stop him, don't you? That's one of my best guys. That's one of my mighty men. I can't do that to him while he's off fighting my battle. But the problem was, David's already got himself in too far now. That lust has now become a fire in his soul. And the thing was not aborted like it should have been. And now he's asking questions. You know what 
the Bible tells you and I we're supposed to do. To be busy, to work with our own hands. It tells you that in the New Testament. When you have people that are into people, you have people that will wind up in trouble. One way or the other. If you are obsessed with everybody else's life, you are asking for trouble. I have a wife. I have four daughters. I have a home. I have enough cars to be embarrassing. I have an acre of property. I have a dog. I have a life. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And it's the life God's given me. And it's enough to keep me busy. I'm not telling you I don't care about you. I'm not telling you it's all about me and I'm happy with me and I just take care of me and me is all that matters. I'm saying all this in context of being a cotton-picking busybody. Of spending my time looking at everybody else's social media to figure out what they're doing. I don't care whose teenager is dating who. That's their business. I'm worried about who my teenager's dating. Real worried about it. Extremely worried about no. <laughs> but but I don't care, you know, who said what in the youth group. I don't care who has marriage problems. Did you hear they're having marriage problems? I care if you're having marriage problems and I'm here to help. Don't take that wrong. I'm talking about it from the other perspective. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? When you start inquiring into everybody else's life and you're looking at, who is she? What's she doing on the roof? Where's her husband? What's going on? You're getting yourself in trouble. God told you on purpose to study to be quiet and to do your own business. We've already made that point, haven't we? And to work with your own hands. You know why? Because the other stuff gets you in trouble. He says, I want the younger widows to marry because if they don't, they begin to get idle. They wander about from house to house, tattlers, busybodies. Listen, destructive. David doesn't know it, but he's fixing to not only ruin his leadership for a little while, he's fixing to ruin his family. And he's fixing to live with the results of lust that he allowed to go. He inquired about what he saw. Now, a couple points here, and then i got to finish this. But look at this. I imagine that when David began asking the questions, he began justifying the decision he already wanted to make. Because in verse 6, uh, in verse, uh, I'm sorry, in verse uh, five, 4, it says that he, he inquires, he brings her in, he lay with her, and then the end of the verse it says, for she had, was purified from her uncleanness. And she returned unto her house. Now, you understand what that's talking about. She's a female. And so he's looking at it like, oh, he's asking the questions. He finds out all about it. So according to the law, and he starts getting spiritual about it. She's, she's, she's recovered from her uncleanness. So I imagine, I imagine God showed you that on purpose to point out to you David's making excuses. David's beginning to justify it. You know how many people I've talked to in church who begin justifying stepping out on their spouse? 
begin justifying divorcing their spouse, begin justifying, well, we were just talking, and he was helping me, and he's giving me advice, and, you know, he's a really good Christian man, and he really loves God, and he really brings out the bow. Oh, yeah, I'll bet he does. I'll bet he does. Yeah, I'm about right, 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 uh-huh. Yeah, he knows you're having marriage trouble, and he's having coffee with you, and he's, gonna, he's bringing God into the picture. Yeah, he's a real godly man. Send him to me for a little bit. You, you better watch out because lust is so wicked and so deceitful, it'll begin giving you excuses like, God would never want me to live this miserable. So then God sends a guy along that's not my husband. It's from God. My God would never want me to. Well, you created your own, huh? Imagine David, David's, David's starting to justify this thing. I've talked to people that justify doing drugs. Bible believers. I've talked to them that justify fornication, justify anything you can want. Bible believers. You say, what is it? It's the destructive power of lust. And it's dangerous. Now my conclusion is this. David goes from bad to worse. Because everything he did was horrible up to this point. We don't have time to read it all. You know the story. You know what he does next? When he says, uh-oh, I messed up. She sends a message, I'm pregnant. You know what he's supposed to do right now? You know what he's supposed to do? Take a knee. Let the tears start flowing. Call in your eye. And face it like a man. A man with his head down, beat red, utterly ashamed, disgusted at himself and disgusted at life. And said, I'm the man. I did it. I messed up. But he doesn't. Because lust is so destructive, it gets you thinking you're good. So he starts the cover-up process. And the cover-up process reaps more judgment and destruction than the sinful act that he had already committed. Whoso covereth his sin shall not prosper, but he that confesseth and forsaketh it shall find mercy. Instead of going, uh-oh, I messed up. God, I need your mercy. What do I do now? And just, God, whatever the fallout is, listen to me. Whatever the fallout is, it is. I did it. I should have stopped it at the beginning. I should have never conceived. When it did, it should have been aborted. But I didn't. I allowed it to grow. I allowed it to nurture. I cherished it. I enjoyed it. I looked at it. I thought on it. I committed the act. It came to birth. And it came to birth as sin. And sin is death. It's a dead baby. Literally. And then he says, I'll kill him. And I'll cover it up. And he gets himself into a league with Joab that we'll see as time goes on is a toxic problem. Because the guilt of David messing up trapped him in a situation where he didn't do with that wicked Joab what he should have done a long time ago and he winds up the rest of his life embroiled in this mess with this wicked man because Joab had leverage on him. You remember what you had me do to Uriah? 
And David's thinking, well, I can't do the right thing now because I messed up back then, which is what the devil tells some of you parents. Well, you remember when we were kids, what's that got to do with anything? You don't just let them get away with hell when you know better. Because, well, you remember what we did? That's a trick of the devil! Like a cop pulls you over, and I can't give you a ticket because I've got to go away with speeding myself a few times. (laughs) It don't work that way, honey. And don't you dare bring up mom and daddy. You're past. It ain't none of their business what your past is. Right is right and wrong is wrong. David got so messed up from this one thing and cried a boatload of tears. He began the cover-up process. Can I say this morning, covering up doesn't work. Look at the end of the chapter. Verses 26 and 27, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and bare him a son. Everything's good. Morning is over, cover up complete. Everybody believed Uriah died in the battle that David set up. And Bathsheba can't tell nobody because he's the king. Likely why she wound up there in the first place. Because, uh uh-oh, I saw Saul go crazy. I know how these kings get when they get drunk on power. I don't want him to kill Uriah. I don't know what he'll do to me. Oh, no, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? See, that's what I think happened for Bathsheba. Because God honored her to make her son the next king. Why do all the perverts think everything else? Oh, the woman. It's always the woman's fault. Why don't you be a leader? She seduced me. You believe the lies she was telling you, stupid. You know she told a hundred other men the same thing. I'm sorry, did that not go over well? (laughs) We fellas, you know, they know how to appeal to your ego and then it's all her fault. You're the one that believed her. You're the one that followed the whole little leadership there. God don't say nothing about that. I don't, I'm not saying either way, because God didn't say. I'm just telling you in my opinion. She's weeping for her husband. And David's going, oh, whew. But look at the last phrase in the chapter. But the thing that David had done <clears throat> displeased the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. You can cover it up, hide it, get away with it, but I will guarantee you one thing. You got away with absolutely nothing. Some men's sins go before under judgment. Some men's they follow after. The day will come when you will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ to give account of the things done in your body and he knows everything. <laughs> and what we'll see as we move forward in the chapter is the destruction that came from a man's lust that wasn't stopped. I told you, it's in all of us. Now here's the thing this morning, and I'm going to let you go. Here's the thing. You got such a wonderful God that even though David committed adultery and then murdered to cover it up, under the Old Testament law, David was dead 
You understand that? He should have died. But when that man who acted out of character and made a massive life-ending mistake, sin, hit his knees and wept and fasted and prayed and begged God for mercy, God gave him mercy. God didn't just give him mercy, but God allowed the son of that woman to become the next king of Israel, one of the greatest kings Israel ever saw. You mean God can take my mess-ups, and even though I reap what I sowed, God can still do something amazing with even my mess-ups? Yeah. But I'll guarantee you this, it was nowhere near as amazing as what God would have done without it. Here's my point this morning, and guess what? No invitation. You wonder why, right? Let me tell you why. Because some of you that have got a real sensitive heart, you're convicted about being, having a mean thought about somebody in church right now. And I'm going to give an invitation. You're going to come down here and you're going to be repenting. God, forgive me for thinking bad about them and help me to get it right. And somebody sitting out there that may not have the same spirit as you is evil surmising. Like, oh, you see who the prayer I knew that guy was a pervert. I never liked him from the start. We're just, we're just, I know how this stuff works. I know how this stuff works. No invitation this morning. What I want you to do is I want you to leave here this morning and I want you to think about recognizing the lust in your life. And again, it doesn't have to just be moral stuff. It can be more than that. And you need to recognize that that stuff is going to destroy, it's going to hurt, it's going to wreak havoc. And that God has made a way to block that stuff from conceiving. That's the Spirit of God running the show day to day, every moment, every time, everywhere. And that is the most wonderful way for anybody on this planet to live their life. It is not bondage, it is liberty. That's right. Number two, welcome to the club. We're all sinners. And we all got lust in us. And every one of us is messed up. So you got a great way to abort it. If you've looked and you shouldn't look. Apply that a hundred different ways, not just morally. If you've looked and you shouldn't look. If you've inquired, you shouldn't inquire. Abort it. It's sin. It's conceived. It's beginning. You better stop it now. You better stop it now. I'll guarantee you, even if it has to do with morality, I'll guarantee you the next one you get ain't going to be any better than the one you got now. Unless you're in danger or something extreme. There's extreme circumstances I get. Outside of that, you just can't get along. He's just a jerk. He's miserable. He doesn't brush his teeth. He doesn't, whatever. You think the other guy's any better? <laughs> Live with them for 20 years and figure it out. Doing it God's way is the only way to do it. And if you're messing up, abort it. It ain't going to get better. It's going to get worse. And if you've already messed up, you got a great God in heaven who loves you, forgives you, and will wash you in his blood. And you don't walk around church with a scarlet A on your forehead. What's done is done, but you better get it right. All right, let's go ahead and stand to our feet.